Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. And for the freeing words that we just sang, that Jesus paid it all. Not some of it, not most of it, but all. And Lord, we thank you for that reminder that we have in Christ today. And Lord, I pray that even as you paid it all, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, as believers, to center our lives on the one who paid it all. Because the reality of it is, is that so oftentimes we are tempted to orient our lives around self rather than around Jesus. But we truly are all those who regularly commit the sin of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness in our relationships, self-centeredness in our marriages, self-centeredness in our parenting, self-centeredness in our homes and in our jobs and in our church and in our community. Lord, it's the relentless tyranny of self. And so, Lord, I pray even, even as we come before you today, Lord, we confess our sins to you, of where we have been self-centered rather than God-centered, Jesus-centered, and, and others' blessing. Lord, forgive us. Lord, I pray that the result of this time together today would be just to reorient our souls, reorient our perspectives, reorient our thoughts, reorient our lives around Jesus, and to live for Jesus and to make him known. By the way that we love one another, by the way that we treat one another, by the way that we share the gospel, the way that we live in this community, Lord, I pray that we would realize that this universe is not about us, that it's about Jesus. And so, Lord, empower our lives to be Christ-focused and Christ-centered in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions this week. And Lord, I pray that as Jesus is lifted up high in our homes and in our lives and in our thoughts and in our hearts, Lord, I pray that that would be transformative. Because as Jesus is lifted up, we'll be drawn to Jesus. As Jesus is lifted up, we'll be changed to be more like Jesus. And even as heaven is the most Jesus-centered place there is in the world, when our lives are Jesus-centered, Lord, we would get a taste of future glory, even now in our lives. So, Lord, make us to be a Christ-centered church and a Christ-centered people. That is our heart's desire. Lord, speak to us as we open your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab a Bible and open it to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Either open your Bible or turn it on and scroll over to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 21, and we'll read through verse 25. As we're reading this, I do want you to keep in mind that who is writing this? This is Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter the one who said, no, you will never go to the cross. This is that Peter who is writing these words. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, and reading through verse 25. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray that as we walk through this passage and we see how it applies to our lives, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be living and desiring and walking in the Christ-centered, cross-centered life. So Lord, speak to us now with the blessings of the cross and how we should respond. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Johnny Erickson Tata tells this story about the meaning of Christian suffering. She says the following. She says, Imagine you are walking down a street. Mind your own business, and you are accosted and forced to carry a huge and heavy basket on your, on your back. You're ordered to walk three blocks, turn left, go two blocks, turn right, and then proceed straight on, staggering underneath the heavy burden underneath the weight you stumble on, bewildered and angry. The weight of the basket is crushing. Your back is breaking. This is so meaningless and haphazard. You resent how much the burden consumes you in those moments. It becomes the focal point. This burden becomes the focal point of your entire existence. And you're halfway around the third block, and you're reeling under the burden, and you finally bellow, What gives? Why? And then the truth is revealed. The burden you are carrying is your child injured and unconscious on top of that you're not trudging through a meaningless rat maze but the most direct route to the hospital emergency room now all of a sudden that whole burden bearing that suffering that you are enduring changes Immediately, you, you straighten up. You inhale with, with new vigor. Your knees quit buckling. Adrenaline and fresh energy quicken your pace, and you move forward with a new attitude because suddenly the suffering you are enduring is infused with, with meaning. Why the change? What's different about before as now, the difference between before, the attitude before, and the attitude now is that you are now carrying this load in the context of relationship. You're enduring suffering in these moments in the context of relationship. Not just any relationship, but the relationship with your child. 
one whom you care about deeply, perhaps even one of the deepest, indeed the deepest relationship that you have in this world. You would do anything for your child. Is it the love that you have for your child that quickens your steps and buoys your heart in those moments as you are motivated now to save? Your relationship has given the burden meaning. Now listen, suffering has no meaning in and of itself. Suffering by itself has no meaning. Left to its own, it is frustrating. It is a bewildering burden. And yet, when we put the context of relationship into the arena of suffering, then all of a sudden, it has meaning. Take for exhibit A, the cross of Jesus. If you were to look at the cross of Christ, if you look at the cross of Jesus and not understand it in context of relationship, you would not understand what was going on there, and you would interpret the cross of Jesus as meaningless suffering. Why is this one who did so much good going through so much suffering? And yet, if we look at the cross through the lens of relationship, then all of a sudden we see the multifaceted meaning of the cross. The first aspect of relationship we can look at the cross through is the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus' perfect relationship with the Father. And we know that the heart of Jesus is to bring glory to the Father. And the heart of the Father is to glorify the Son. And we see that in high definition there for us on the cross. As through His death, Jesus is bringing glory to God through the salvation of sinners. And through His death, the Father is being glorified. Or the Father is glorifying the Son so that all who look to Him will have eternal life. And so the context of relationship brings meaning to the suffering. Not only is there a context of relationship of the perfect relationship of Jesus and the Father and their mutual desire to bring glory to each other, but we also see within the context of relationship the broken relationship between God and man. And what Jesus is doing there on the cross is suffering to restore us, to restore you to a relationship with God. God. And when we look at our suffering in the context of the cross, then all of a sudden our suffering as well takes on new meaning as we realize what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to walk in the footsteps of Christ. So over the last several weeks, we've been walking through the passages on the cross from the book of Matthew, from Matthew 26 and 27. We'll get into 28 next Sunday, and then the week after Easter. Get this! We're going to finish Matthew. (laughs) Pretty stunning, isn't it? All 28 chapters, we walk through them all. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's been a blessing. It's been a treat. God's just been doing some things in our souls. But... As we walk through the cross, now we want to ask ourselves, how should it change us? What does it it mean? How should it impact our lives? What does it mean to live the cross-centered life? And how is that connected to suffering? How is it connected to endurance? And how is that connected to holiness? How does it change my my life every, every day? And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk today about the issue of living the cross-centered life. Living the cross-centered life. Three aspects of living the cross-centered life. How does that change our perspective on suffering and holiness and striving for Jesus in this world? 
first is this. What does it mean to live the cross-centered life? Number one, Jesus suffered as your saving example. So follow in his footsteps. Jesus suffered as your saving example. So follow in his footsteps. In verses 21 through 23, Peter tells us that Jesus faithfully suffered as our example, as an example for us. And not only did he leave us his example, but his suffering itself enables us to follow his example as we suffer as well as the people who follow the suffering Savior. His death and resurrection enable us to live righteously before God. Now, think about this. It would be one thing if Jesus set us an example that we couldn't follow. So Jesus sets an example and says, here's the perfect example. Good luck. <laughs> and that's how some of us feel, but that is not the way the Christian life works. Jesus set us the example. He redeems us, and he fills us with himself, empowering us day by day to walk in the example of Jesus, to follow in the example of our Christ to walk in his steps. Look at, it, look at it in verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Amazingly enough to hear Peter saying this. Peter, the one who told Jesus, you shall never go to the cross. And now Peter is saying, he's the example of following Think about it in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. It says this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Never take up the cross. Never follow the road of suffering. What did Jesus say to Peter? Well, he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But now, Peter, this side of the cross, after the cross, after the resurrection, now Peter is preaching Jesus as the example for us to follow. Listen, there is no such thing as a crossless, sufferingless Christianity. If you are going to follow the Savior, this indeed is the suffering Savior. And there are times in our lives when, because of our relationship with Jesus, we will endure seasons of suffering in our lives. Real discipleship means take up your cross and follow Jesus. We see that at the beginning of verse 21, that suffering is the calling of the Christian life. Follow Jesus, even suffering if you must, in order to follow his footsteps. Now, the call to suffering goes against the grain of so many gospel presentations in the West. So much gospel presentations really has, has nothing to do with what you see in this book. Because sometimes people present the gospel something, something like this. If you come to Jesus, your life will be great. And you'll have no problems. And you'll never suffer. And you'll never struggle. Again, you'll have plenty of money. You won't be sick. And you won't suffer. But friend, I tell you, that is not the Bible. And we shouldn't think that that is the Scripture because we are following the Savior who suffered for us. Jesus says to us, take up your cross every day and follow me. 
The gospel is, yes, Jesus paid it all, but as we walk the road to eternity, there are times, there are seasons when we will face suffering for the glory of Jesus as we live between the times, as we live between the already and the not yet. Yes, indeed, there will come a time, there will come a day when suffering will be completely eliminated for those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There is coming a day when there will not be any more death, when there won't be any more funerals, when there won't be any more cancer, when there won't be any dreaded diagnoses, when there won't be any opening up the count and realizing that you're in the red, when there won't be any dandelions in my yard, when there won't be any... (laughs) When there won't be any of these, the curse will be gone. I'll never prick my finger on a tumbleweed again. And so... (laughs) Be a little personal here, right? <laughs> but all of those things that we dread are going to be gone. That's the not yet. Yet we still live between the times, between the cross and the empty tomb and the second coming. So why do Christians suffer? What are some reasons why Christians endure suffering in this life, in this world? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons. Certainly one of the kinds of reasons is the sowing and reaping kind of suffering. The reality of it is, is when we sow sin, and when we, the Bible calls it sowing to the flesh, when we sow sin, when we, when we sow sin, we will reap unrighteousness. We will oftentimes reap suffering that is directly connected to our, to our sin. In other words, if we do dumb, we de- re- reap dumb, right? <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> I point you back to times in my life. I sowed dumb, I did dumb, and I reaped dumb. <laughs> I reaped the consequences of my foolishness, or maybe we should say it this way, my sinfulness. And there is that kind of suffering, suffering the consequences of our sin. Jesus, indeed, he, he, he redeemed us from condemnation of our sin and the presence of sin eventually, but indeed, in this life, when we sin, there are still consequences that we have to, that sometimes we reap. And so sometimes, the suffering that we endure is suffering for our sin, but that's not the example that Jesus gives us here in this passage. Jesus is the sinless one, and so in this passage, Jesus is giving us the example of suffering for righteousness. So there's a suffering that's sowing and reaping that's related to sin. There's another kind of suffering that we endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. We do the right thing. We live the right way. We live a Christ-like life or seek to carry the cross and follow Jesus. And in the midst of that, we encounter resistance. We encounter pain. We encounter suffering. We encounter difficulty. And that's where, that is the moment that our theology really gets tested. It's one thing to say, I don't believe in the healthy, wealthy gospel. It's a whole different thing to endure a season of suffering and say, I trust you, Jesus, through all of this. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to hang on. I'm going to live for you no matter what happens. That is the suffering that follows in the steps of Jesus. Not a result of sin, but a suffering for righteousness. Sometimes it's su- we suffer and it hurts when we say no to sin. You know, sometimes it's easy. We just give in to sin. We just go after it, go into sin. But you know what? It hurts to say no, 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 no to sin, doesn't it? We suffer. 
Not only do we suffer when we say no to sin, but there are times when we suffer when it may cost you friends. It may cost you relationships. Listen, teenager students, sometimes resisting sin can cost you better grades, can't it? Sometimes resisting sin, adults, and some of you teenagers, can cost you business, can cost you financially. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to compromise in this area. And because of your pursuit of righteousness, because of your pursuit of holiness, it, ca- it can lead to particular sufferings in your life. And so sometimes we suffer for righteousness. We suffer for that. But we know even in the midst of our suffering, we are confident that God will use that suffering to be a blessing to other people as there are things that we endure in life, when we come out on the other side, we can look back and see the deliverance of God. We can see God's hand at work. We couldn't see it in the moment sometimes. But when we get out on the other side, perhaps God is using those experiences in our lives so that we can turn around and help other people who are in the body who may be entering a particular season like you just came out of. That they are walking through some difficult things and say, you know what, I know because I've been there. And God brought me through. And here is how he helped me. And now I'm going to be there with you. That is the call of this cross-shaped yoke of Christ when we bear it. Not as individuals. Don't think of the cross-centered life as you by yourself carrying a cross down an empty, abandoned road. But indeed, we as the people of God here at the church are all together to carry up our crosses and follow Jesus and do it together to do it as a community. And when we stumble, we help each other up on the road to glory. We help each other out. And then, let's not forget that there is some suffering that we endure as Christians that we have no idea why. And we want to have that question answered. When we follow Jesus, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, that's the very question he asked. My God, my God, why? And there are some seasons in our lives when we go through suffering and we cannot figure out why. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know what you're doing. Why is it so important to talk about this? It's so important to talk about this is because this is one of the key reasons why so many young people and so many Gen X people and so many millennials go through a season of suffering. We failed to warn them of this. We failed to warn people of my generation. You're going to follow Jesus, and sometimes it's going to go difficult. Sometimes it's not going to go the way you plan. Sometimes it's not going to pan out the way you thought it was. It's going to be different. It's going to be weird. It's going to be tough, and you just have to endure. And sometimes you don't even know why, but just trust Jesus. That he's going to work all things out for your glory, or for his glory, and for your good. But what happens is when we buy into the healthy, wealthy gospel, when we buy into the, oh, come to Jesus, everything's going to be perfect, then what happens when it doesn't, then people at that moment go through what is called deconstruction, where they begin to lose their faith. And they think, God, I was promised, and I don't know what happened. Be careful of taking what belongs to the future and putting it dumping it all into the present. Is there going to come a day of deliverance? Yes, absolutely. 
Sometimes it comes in this life. Sometimes it comes in this world. Sometimes we don't even know why or how long or what it's going to be. But we know in confident assurance that the one who died on the cross for our sin also rose again from the grave for our justification. He will be with us in the dark valley of the soul. If he doesn't deliver from the valley, he will carry us through the valley and he will deliver us safely all the way home. And so in the middle of those sufferings where you don't even understand why or what he's doing or what's going on, it is in those very moments, trust in the Lord and grow in him. It is in those moments in which we cling to his hand most tightly. Or perhaps maybe it's in those very moments that it's not us clinging to his hand most tightly. It is him clinging to our hands most tightly. And we can look back in our lives those who are older than you, those who are more experienced than you, talk to them sometime. Ask them, tell me about a particular season of suffering when God held your hand and led you through and just sit there and listen and be encouraged by them to know that the particular season of suffering that you're walking through is not something weird or something unusual or something that means you're not a good Christian. No, it may mean you are a God, that you are a great, a normal Christian. And this is just what happens when you follow the suffering Savior. Jesus, as he lived righteously before God, he endured suffering. Verse 21, again, says in two different ways that Jesus is the pattern of suffering for our lives. Look at verse 21 again. He says, to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example. That word means, it literally means pattern. It, it, it means traceable pattern. Like back in, like, like when I was in school, we learned cursive, right? <laughs> so I don't think they learned it as much today. But when I was in school, we learned cursive. And the only way I would ever learn that is, is if I had the dotted lines. <laughs> I mean, the teacher would draw it on the board. I'm like, yeah, can you give me the dotted lines? <laughs> and so I get the piece of paper with the dotted lines and I'd, I'd get out my pencil and she, oh no, hand, hold, hold it this way, okay. And then, and then I would trace the pattern. E, I. Q was always the hardest. Why does it look like a two? Anyway, Q <laughs> makes no sense. I just printed that one. <laughs> but you, you, you draw the pattern. Here in this passage, it says Jesus is the example. He, he, his is the pattern. And we trace our lives over the lines that he's drawn in the gospel. And he is the righteous sufferer. Not only is Jesus' life the tracing paper, I love, what, I love what Karen Job says in her commentary about this. She says, Jesus is the paradigm by which Christians write the large letters of his gospel in their lives, tracing his lines. Not only is, there, is Jesus the pattern, the traceable pattern, but the second example that he gives is that we are to walk in his steps. There in verse 21 at the end, it says, you might follow in his steps. I remember when my, when my kids were young, when my kids were, were smaller, I remember we went this one time, it was after it rained, and we went, to, we went to go fishing. And this particular fishing place, I didn't know where it was, I'd never been there before, and, and when we got there, there was, a, there was a pretty steep embankment to get down, to get down to the water, down to the river, down to the place where I'd been told that there were fish that were swimming there, waiting for us to catch them. I looked down that, and thankfully Mandy wasn't with us. <laughs> like, no. Or I'll watch you. <laughs> I'll watch you go down. And so we, <laughs> and so we got there. So we, we, we saw this steep embankment. I remember going down, and I remember finding the rocks to go down. I remember saying to my kids, look, 
every, every place I put my feet, that is where you need to put your feet. Because that's where the safe rocks are. I've tested this road out. I've tested this way. This is the way. Walk in it. And so the way they made it safely down to the bank to fish, I'm not sure we did any catching, but we did some fishing. (laughs) But the way they got down is they followed the pattern that had already set for them, the road that had already walked. Jesus has already walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering for us. And so when we follow in his steps, we follow his steps of righteousness. Sometimes we follow his steps of suffering, but we do it because we are following, tracing the pattern of Jesus, stepping in his steps, his pattern, his life that he has set out before us. His example was that he was the righteous sufferer. He suffered, but he didn't deserve it. He was without sin. Peter points out in verses 22 and 23 that Jesus is the righteous sufferer. Look at verse 22. He says, he committed no sin. Deceit was not found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. In fact, Jesus is the one who had the right to stand up for himself, but in those very moments, he endured suffering. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says there, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth now there's a specific application here to us when we endure suffering that's just just been doing heart surgery on me this week here it is here in this passage why does peter focus so much on jesus's verbal response to suffering Why does Peter, here in this passage, focus on Jesus' verbal response to suffering? Look at it again. I want you to hear the verbal response of Jesus to suffering. Look at verse 21 again. See it through this lens. For to this you have been called. Christ suffered for you, leaving an example. You may follow in his steps. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's words. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's words. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That is words. Why is Peter focusing so much on words? It's because of our particular temptation when we suffer. So oftentimes when we endure suffering, our most, our, our least Christ-like moments are accompanied by words. Words of complaining. Words of bitterness. Words of blaming. Words of blaming God. Words of blaming others. Words of anger. Words of revenge. This is the pattern. Jesus says, here is the pattern. Walk in righteousness when you suffer so oftentimes our fallen condition and our fallen nature and the evidence of our continuing need to grow in jesus our continuing need of sanctification is in those very moments when we suffer what comes out of our mouth is sometimes the least christ-like thing at least christ-like attribute in our lives isn't it it's in those moments 
of suffering when we are called most to follow Jesus and his word. At the end of verse 23, he says that Jesus continued to entrust himself in the one who judges justly. Isn't that the key? Is that what we are evidencing by our words in those moments in suffering? We're not trusting the Lord to judge justly. We're not trusting the Lord to judge rightly. We're not trusting the Lord to rescue us in the proper time. We're not trusting the Lord. In fact, in those moments, we're not trusting the Lord. We're, again, we are becoming self-centered, not Christ-centered, not cross-centered. In fact, this is the path of Jesus where he set the example, suffering and walking in trust of the Father to deliver him at the right moment. So first of all, Jesus sets the example for us. Follow in his steps, especially in our response to suffering, especially in our words. Number two is this, Jesus suffered as your atoning sacrifice, so live the transformed life. Jesus suffered as an atoning sacrifice, so live the transformed life. And verse 24 is at the very heart of the gospel. It says there, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, in his suffering and his agony, as he hanged on the cross, he was nailed to the cross and was dying for there. The key two words in that verse is for us, for you, for me. He was not bearing his own sins. He bore your sins at Calvary and he died as your substitute paying your penalty. Jesus bore our sins in his death instead of us, of us having to bear them for eternity. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Let this sink in. Do you believe that Jesus has paid for all of your sins? All of your burdens? All of the sins of your brothers and sisters? The implications of this individually and as a church are huge. As for us as individuals, we trust in Jesus. We can say to Jesus, we, have, we trust you. I trust you that indeed you have borne all of my sins. Past, present, future, so much so that Romans 8 can say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you who have even confessed your sins to the Lord are walking daily in condemnation. The voice of the devil saying, I know who you are and I know what you've done. And it is that very voice that seeks to be the accuser of the brothers. But against that, you can say this, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He has washed me white as snow. That is the good news of the gospel. Trust Jesus to... He paid for all of your sins, all the ones public, all the ones private, removed from you simply because he did it all. It's received by faith. Let that sink in for a moment. You don't have to carry your sins. He has borne them to Calvary on the cross. I want to speak to you if you have never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you are not yet a Christian, I want to say to you, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're watching online. And I want to tell you that what the good news of the gospel is all about is this, is that we are all cosmic rebels. 
The Bible says we are all sinners. We are all cosmic uh, we are we are all cosmic insurrectionists. We are all cosmic treasonists against the high king of the universe. And what is the penalty for high treason? It's death. Physical death and eternal death, separation from God. But even in our sinfulness, God loved us. And that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in our place, fulfilling all of God's righteousness, doing everything right. And yet this one who did everything right was arrested and crucified in our place. He died and three days later he rose again from the grave. And if you will trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, receiving his mercy and grace, the Bible says you will be saved. All of your sins will be wiped out. And not only will you be saved, not only your sins will be wiped out, but the Lord Jesus will come in, into your life, into your heart, and he will give you new life. He will give you his righteousness. He will fill you with his presence. That is the good news of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we need to hold on to this fact that Jesus has paid it all, and therefore, we need to pray along with Jesus, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When you look at the cross and you know the forgiving grace of Jesus, your calling as one who has received the grace of Jesus is to follow the footsteps of Jesus and forgive your brother and sister in Christ. One of the sins of our age is this begrudgingness, this, this holding a grudge. And I would like to say it doesn't exist in church folk. <laughs> it doesn't exist for those who follow Christ. Oh no, I think sometimes we're tempted even more to these ends. Brothers and sisters, we ought to follow in the voice of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus and the walk of Jesus, and that is to be quick to forgive, quick to love, quick to know that we have no business holding an account against somebody else, holding somebody in our debt when it is that God has already forgiven them. We should forgive as well. The good news doesn't stop there. The, Jesus also forgives us of our sins. He forgives us of the consequences of sin, and he also frees us from the power of sin. There in verse 24, he says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There is the purpose of the cross, dying to sin and living to righteousness. We are not only to be set free from the penalty of sin, but we are to be set free from the practice of sin too. We are to die to sin and live to righteousness. That is the cross-centered life. Now, some of you, here's the deal, some of you here Jesus's word about freeing you from guilt and punishment of sin. And you say, that's really good news. I'm glad I get to go to heaven. But then you hear the news that the cross also frees you from the power of sin. And the cross also frees you so that you can live a new life of holiness. And all of a sudden, that does not sound like good news. Why is that? It's because so oftentimes, some people want to have the benefits of salvation but not also the blessing of salvation to live a holy life. Why? Because you love the world too much. Because you love the world and you love your own way too much. And the good news of this passage is that Jesus sets us free not only from the consequences of sin, 
and the power of sin and the presence of sin, but he does a new work in here so that we long to live for him. That brings us to final point. Number three is this. Jesus suffered to heal your broken relationship with God, so run to him. We see that in verse 24 and 25. He says, He himself was bore, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Here it is. By his wounds you have been healed. Some people point to that and say that's physical healing. I would say, yes, amen. But be careful not to reach into the not yet and bring everything into the present. Sometimes Jesus does heal in this life miraculously. We praise God for that. And sometimes he stays his hand and we don't know why. But we know this, that those who are in Christ Jesus will one day receive a resurrected, glorified body and will be healed forever and ever and ever. No more sneezing, no more coughing, no more coronavirus, no more cancer, no more pain in the knees, no more pain in the neck, no more any of that, amen? <laughs> no more tired, no more sleepless, no more any of that stuff. Praise God for that. But you know what he's talking about really here? When he's talking about this whole idea, by his wounds you have been healed, I think most of all, he's talking about healing our sin-sick hearts. These hearts that desire unrighteousness and want to go our own way rather than God's way. I think one of the things that Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again from the grave is he fills us with the Spirit as the new temple of God. And by his Holy Spirit, he begins to work in here to where over time, as we walk with Jesus, the Christ cross-centered road, we begin to desire his way and not our way. And that's what we pray for. And that's what God does in here. Is increasingly so as you walk with Jesus, you want to please him more, you want to love him more, and you want to do the world stuff less because I know that leads to pain. I know that leads to unrighteousness. I know that displeases my Father in heaven. I don't want to do whatever I can to please Him. And He changes your desires to where you desire holiness. You desire righteousness. And remember, all of this, the walking through suffering, following the footsteps of Jesus, striving for holiness, trusting in the one who paid for sin's price, all of this called the cross-shaped life the Christ-centered, cross-centered life is in the context of relationship. That's what makes it make sense. Because the very last verse of chapter 2, and I close with this, you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to a person. You have returned to a relationship with the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is the good news of the gospel. For those of you who not trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, your response today, let me encourage you to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. For those of you who have already trusted Him, let me encourage you, are you walking through suffering? Perhaps today you need to pray to the Lord, Lord, give me endurance, help me to trust you. I don't ask for all the answers, so I just ask you for faith and help me to trust, help me to press on. Give me the Spirit to help me endure. Fill me once again with Jesus. Help me to see your pattern of life. For those of you who've been dallying with sin and playing around with sin, my encouragement for you is to pray, God, give me a desire for holiness. Give me God, God, give me a desire for righteousness and power of that in my heart. Give me a greater love for Jesus and holiness. Maybe that needs to be your response. How do you need to respond today to what the Lord is saying to you?
Let's pray and we'll spend a moment of silence and then let's respond together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And it is truth and it is life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Pray for those who are enduring suffering during this time in life. They may know what the cause is. They may not know what the cause is. They don't know what the reason. I have no idea. But Lord, I pray in the middle of that, you would help them to grow in their trust in you. That you are their shepherd. You are their deliverer. And you will not lead them astray. And you will use this season for your glory and their good. Even if we don't get it, even if we don't get a full explanation, Lord, we trust you. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with sin, that you would help them to grow in holiness and saying yes to Jesus and no to sin. Lord, I pray also for those who may not know you as Savior, Lord. Lord, I pray that today would be the day they would trust in you, open their eyes so they could see their need of Jesus, and that you are the greatest gift ever, and they would trust in you. Lord, work during our time of response. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name.